Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your gospel. Uh, thank you for these students being here these last few days. And um, God, I pray that that you would cause these guys to really pursue hard after you. God, that they would have a, a deep, real understanding of the gospel and what it means to be saved, of what it means to pursue hard after you, of what it means to be conformed to your image. God, I pray that you'd empower me this morning as I speak. God, I pray that I speak from your word, from the authority of your word, God. And, and Lord, I pray that you God, the words that come out of my mouth, God, and God, these guys as they hear them. Lord, I pray that you would produce disciples. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Do you understand the skit? No. Yes, anybody? Do you all understand the skit? <clears throat> It's a little bit confusing. Uh, <clears throat> the skit was basically, it was Jesus on the cross there in the middle. And each person would come up and basically just try to make Jesus cool with what they're cool with. Just try to conform Jesus to, to them, really. To make him not see the bad parts. To make him um, fit into their lives. When in reality... None of these guys were really worshiping the Lord, except for the guy at the end. And the, the guy at the end was, was, it was a picture of a guy who, instead of conforming Jesus to his image, he was conforming to Christ's image, right? You know, I'll say this, and, I, and I'm only going to speak for just a few minutes this morning. You guys are going to go to a last year group. Um, there are a lot of people in America that know the gospel. There really are. There's a church on every corner. I mean, there is. There's so many churches here, but there are so few people that really follow Jesus. There are a lot of people that know the message of the gospel, but so few that really are conformed to it. You know, because we, we can't make Christ conform to us. We can't make Christ anything, you know. Either we accept Christ and pursue after him or we reject him. That's it. Those are all our, our alternatives. We either follow him and become like him or we reject him and remain his enemies. And we talked about that. We talked about the goodness of the gospel. You know, and jumping off to the skit, I'm reminded of the passage that we first used in Romans 1, talking about the wrath of God. And it says, The wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen to this part. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And here it is. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And that's when they started creating idols. Although they knew God, all right, so what did these people know about God? It says that they knew his divine, his divinity. They knew that he was God. They knew that he was powerful. Later on in verse 32, it'll say that they even knew his moral law, that they knew God, but they said, no thanks. They did not give thanks to God, and they didn't honor God. And, and I think this, is, this goes on every day, that those folks that would know the gospel might not pursue after the Lord. You know, many of you guys sat in the, the How to Study the Bible breakout yesterday, um, I wasn't in there. I don't know how many of you guys sat in there, but um, the crazy thing is that, you know, a lot of us that would say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I pursue the Lord. We don't really pursue after the Lord. You know, we just know about him, right? And there's a huge difference, even in Romans 1, about knowing the gospel versus pursuing the Lord, versus being conformed, your whole life being conformed to Christ. Because a lot of people go to church, right? 
and are unaffected by the gospel. You know, a lot of people say things about Jesus and um, really don't intend for their life to change at all as far as Jesus goes. And there's a, I want to read, a, or I want to talk about a couple of stories, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, and then we're going to break you up into small groups. Uh, but stories about folks that, um, the first story is about folks that knew God but didn't give thanks to him as God. There's a story, it's, a, it's a, one of the more obscure stories in the Bible, it's from 1 Samuel, where, uh, you know, God has had a chosen people. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel, right? Y'all remember this? And so you had the chosen people of Israel, and uh, God gave them his laws. This is way before Jesus, you know? God gave him his laws. You remember Moses goes up on the mountain, and he gets the Ten Commandments, and he gets these two stones with God's laws on them, and then he comes back down with the laws, and what do they do with them? Y'all remember? Yeah, yeah, initially he's mad because they've made an idol out there, and they've melted all this gold and made an aisle and they're worshiping. So he smashes the first pair, has to go back up and get a second pair. And so he, he, gets, he gets more of these, these tablets of the law. And then what do they do with those, the good pair? What? Yeah, they save them in the ark. They put them in this box, right? They put them in a special box called the ark. All right, so they put the law in the ark and they close it up. Now, God's people are traveling. They're like gypsies at this point. They're living out in the desert. They're living in tents. And so they set up a special tent for the worship of God. And so they put this box in there, the ark. They put this box with God's laws in it, and only the priests are supposed to see the ark. They put it in this tent called the holy place, and then the box itself has a special place called the most holy place. Now, the box wasn't God, right? It just had laws in it. But, you know, when the priests would go in there, they'd do their thing, like God's presence specially rested around this box, you know, and it was kind of representative of God's power to the nation. And what happened after a while was, they got so used to God's power being around, they thought, dude, we're unstoppable. Because they started just destroying nations. You know, they, they'd go out in the battle and they'd have this box, the Ark of the Covenant, and they'd think, man, God, at first they thought, God is powerful. God is taking care of his people. This is fantastic. And after they won a few battles, they're like, dude, and nobody can touch us. We whoop out this box and we are set. And so they thought, man, all we got to do is bring the box in here. We ain't hardly got to fight. We got this. And so in 1 Samuel, they go against this nation called the Philistines, and they go out without the box. And they, they start fighting against the Philistines, and they're just thinking, man, we're good. Nobody's ever beaten us. And they start fighting against the Philistines, and the Philistines destroy them. They kill like 4,000 Israelites, which is not that big of an army. So 4,000, I mean, if we lost 4,000 in Afghanistan, it would be big news, right? And so 4,000 of these guys die, and, and they're devastated. And so they're like, we got to get the box. Let's get it. We got to get the box and we're unstoppable. So they go back and they get the box, the Ark of the Covenant, right? And they bring it out. When they bring it out, all the Israelites are like, yeah, they're so excited that it says, you know, it's at nighttime and they're yelling so loud. It says the earth resounds with their yell. So it's echoing through this big valley and the Philistines hear it over there and they're like, oh shoot, they got the box. They got, they pulled God out. Now there's no way we're going to win. And they're so freaked out. They're like, Man, they're going to destroy us. What are we going to do? And then finally, one guy stands up and says, come on, y'all. We're men. Let's go kill them. Who cares about the box? And they go out. So the Israelites have the box, which always God has blessed his people. But they got beat this last time. So they're thinking, man, now we got the box. We're good to go. We got it. Nobody can beat us when we got this. And the Philistines come up against them. And who do you think wins? Dude, the Philistines destroy them. They kill 30,000 of them. And they take the box. They take the ark with them, and the Israelites are devastated. They're like, how do we lose? We had the box. We had the ark. 
What in the world? And they go back. There's one guy, basically, there's just a handful of guys that survive. And one guy straggles back to, to the camp. And there's an old man who's a priest there. And he goes over to him and he said, listen. And the old man's blind. He's 93 years old. And, uh, and he says, uh, 93 or 98. Anyway, he's really old. And, uh, and he's overweight. He's a big dude. And, uh, and so he goes back to him and he's like, how'd the battle go? And he said, well, I've just come and we lost. And he said, and I'm sorry to tell you, and this is the priest He said, your two sons that were in battle are dead. Also, they took the box. They took the ark. And the old man fell over. And he was so big and old and frail that he broke his neck and died. And they tell one of the girls, she's pregnant, and her husband's in the battle. And they're like, I'm sorry, your husband died. And they took the box. And she gives birth right there. I mean, she's just, everybody's just in agony. They're just overwhelmed. People are dying and giving birth. It's just the worst news ever because they say the glory of God is left. And so the box goes to this other nation, to the Philistines. And they've got this box and they're like, sweet. What are we going to do with it? I mean, now we're unstoppable. They thought they were unstoppable. Now we got this because the Philistines, they had a lot of gods. They had one God that it was like uh, Asherah where they, they'd, they'd worship these, uh, they had these totem poles that kind of they sit up on the hill and they'd worship with that. Then they had a fish God called Dagon that they had him in a temple that he was barred from the Persians. So basically when they'd conquer nations... They'd be like, thank you, we'll take this God. No, thank you, we'll take this God. Great. And they basically had this big hall of gods that they were like, man, we are going to be unstoppable. We'll dominate everybody. Then we'll get their gods and we're good. So they put the ark, the box of God's laws, they put it in the temple with Dagon, the fish god, which is like a half man on top, half fish at the bottom, kind of merman kind of deal. Anyway. Uh, so they, they put them in there with that, and they're like, man, this is great. We're going to have like a hall of gods. And so then they leave, and they come back the next day, and the, the ark's still there. But Dagon, the fish god, that statue has fallen in front of the ark. And they're like, well, that's weird. It's never happened before. So they set it back up. And the next day they come in, and the ark's still there, and Dagon, the fish god, has fallen down again. But now he's broken in pieces, and his hands are sitting right by the door. And they're like, oh, shoot, maybe there's something to the box. Maybe there's something to this God. And so they're like, well, let's, let's, let's take the box out of here. And so they take them out. They, they put this box in the city and everybody in the city gets sick. They start getting these big boils and start dying. And they're like, oh, no. So they take the box and they put it in another city. And then everybody there starts getting sick and they start getting boils. And they're like, oh, shoot. And they put it in a third city and the same thing happens. They're like, all right, we got to get rid of this thing. I don't care. We may have won wars with it, but I mean, we're about to all die in here. We got to get rid of the box. And so what they do is they're like, they're kind of smart. They say, you know, maybe this is just a coincidence. Maybe everybody's just getting sick or maybe the Israelite God is punishing us. So what they did is they took two cows that weren't normally used for pulling carts. They were milk cows and they hooked them up to a cart and they put the ox or the ark on top of the, on top of the cart. And they took the baby calves out and stood them right there beside them and said, all right, now, if these cows walk back to their nation, leaving their babies behind, we'll know that it was definitely God's judgment. If they just kind of wander around, we'll know it was coincidence. And so they set the ark off and there it goes straight back to God's people. All right. So God's people, the borderlands, they see the box coming on these milk cows and they're like, the box, it's back, it's back. And they go. And start messing with the box. And this whole village gathers around and start messing with the box. And a bunch of those guys die. It's weird. But think about what's happening. 
neither one of these nations are worshiping God. They're using him, right? They're trying to use him. But you don't use God, right? These guys are trying to use God in a way, and, and God's striking down his chosen people. He's striking down the enemies because neither one of these nations is honoring him as God. They're using him for their own purposes, just like in the skit, right? But that's, that's never how the scripture talks about God, that we, we can't wield Jesus when we need him, you know? We can't ignore Jesus all year, and then when your mom gets sick, whoop him out. And now he's going to fix that. Now he's going to fix the abuse that you just went through. We either are conformed to Christ and give him our whole life, or we reject him. That's it. We either truly pursue Christ or nothing. We can't just wield him. He's not a magic box. There's a verse in Matthew that talks about the gospel. It says this, Matthew uh, 13, 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven, listen to this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We leave that verse up there. All right, you see what's happening here? This is Jesus telling a story, and he's telling us what the gospel is like, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he's like, all right, picture, picture the story that he's telling here. This guy's walking home from work, maybe. It's an imaginary story. It's just a story he's telling. It probably didn't actually happen. He's just saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. So picture this. The guy's walking home from work. He's walking in a field that obviously doesn't belong to him. And clink, he kicks something. He's like, what was that? Sound like metal. He starts digging around in this guy's field. He doesn't know whose field it is, right? He's digging around the field and he finds a box. So he pulls up this big box out of the ground. And the lock's rusted on it, so he's able to open it. And he opens up the lock, and he throws the lid off. And imagine if it was you. There are tens of millions of dollars in there. Imagine if this happens to you. You're walking, and in a field, you find this box with treasure. Millions of dollars in there. And this dude's like, sweet. The lottery in a box. This is awesome. And so he's like, all right, time out. Now, I can't steal it. I mean, if I take it, it's stealing it. And also, I'll probably get caught because, you know, in a tiny town, you know, like in the Middle East, a tiny town in the Middle East, you start coming up in there with pinky rings and fur coats and stuff. Everybody's going to know, all right, time out. He found a treasure somewhere. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't just like somebody just all of a sudden got wealthy in that town, in that time period, you know? And so they're like, he's like, man, shoot, how am I going to do this legitimately to where it's like I didn't steal it? And he's thinking, man, there's so much money right here. And then he thinks, oh, time out. I could buy the field. I could just... I could just bury this back. And if I buy this field, if the landowner doesn't know that there's treasure here, I buy this field and it's mine. Then legitimately, I own the treasure. And so he's like, yes, this is the best plan. So like he goes and talks to the landowner. He's like, "Uh, I'd like to buy your field. How much? And he tells him how much and he calculates it up. And he's like, I can do it. I can just, if I sell everything, if I sell my own field, if I sell my house, if I sell my clothes, I can show up here in a t-shirt and shorts and buy this thing. If I sell everything I've got. And so in his joy, it says, he runs and sells everything he's got. And then comes back, gives the guy the money and boom, the treasure's his. He gives away everything. And it says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The gospel is a treasure that we give our whole lives to, right? It's not something that we wield whenever we need it. It's not just a a knowledge of God that we need to tuck back and have for the day that we die so that we can go to heaven one day. Because most folks, to be honest, most folks want to be saved enough to go to heaven but lost enough to have a good time here, right? We don't truly want to know Christ in a way that he changes our lives. We don't really want to pursue the Lord. We don't really want to study the Bible. We want heaven 
the end. That's not how it works, though. Because the gospel is valuable. We, we just heard over the last two days that the Son of Man, that God came to where He could take our punishment for us. That's valuable. It's huge. That, that God would take our badness and we could get His goodness. That is the treasure hidden in the field that our whole lives should revolve around. You know, Christ just isn't something we add to the list as one of our priorities. It's, it's our life. I'm going to read this one last thing. Y'all know the story of Paul? This guy Saul who became Paul? Saul was a bad man. I read this story to my, my kids last night. Saul was a really bad man, right? And he's, he's a religious guy, and so he's really angry at Jesus for saying that he's God. You know? And he lived a little bit after Jesus, never met him in person, and, but he's angry at this, and so he's trying to beat up all of the followers of Jesus. So he's going after the followers of Jesus, dragging them out of their houses. Picture this. This dude is so angry at Jesus that anybody that says they're following Jesus, he was dragging women out of their houses and putting them in jail. He's killing Christians. There's a guy named Stephen who gives a speech in the New Testament, and these guys throw rocks at him until he's dead. And Paul's like, or Saul is like, yep, let's do this. Let's kill them all. And then one day... He's got a letter saying he can go and arrest all the Christians in this next town. So he's headed that way. And in the middle of the day, bow, this big light shines on him. And Jesus speaks to him from heaven and says, why are you fighting me? Eventually, he, he's blind for like three days. And eventually, he realizes that he's not following God truly. And, and basically commits his life to following Jesus. His whole life changed. He, he gets a name change. And now he goes to that town. But instead of, of dragging women out and putting them in prison, he starts preaching the gospel. He starts preaching about Jesus. It's a, it's a huge change. He wrote most of the New Testament, right? We get most of this from him, this guy that used to, used to beat Christians up. Listen to what he says. He's talking about reasons to be proud in his own accomplishments. He says this. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he starts saying why he's a good dude. He starts talking about why he's such a good guy that, you know, really, if you're talking about it in the world standards, that he's got it all together, right? You know, you think about a pro athlete. What makes a a pro athlete a pro athlete? They got to have some God-given skill, right? Not just anybody can be a pro athlete. I used to think, man, I'm going to the NBA, but I am 5'7 and slow and white and I don't shoot that well. And there's a lot of factors that are keeping me out of the NBA, right? And so I, I, I wasn't born with the skill, right? But you got to be born with the skills and then you got to work at it, right? There's two things going on, right? You got to be born with it and then you got to work at it. You take a guy like LeBron James. LeBron James is built to play basketball. You know, he's 6'8. He weighs 270. He's a monster. He's either built for basketball or to be a tight end. He's a monster, right? You a big Heat fan? You're not a big Heat fan. I see see what's going on. Uh, But he's built to play basketball. You take a guy like like Michael Phelps, nobody likes swimming, right? Most of everybody doesn't like swimming. Everybody cares about swimming during the week of the Olympics, right? And then after that, you're like... Oh, swimming's on. <laughs> no, thanks. You know, so like, uh, but during the Olympics, everybody's like, yeah, swimming. No offense. Swimming is 
moving through the water. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but like, all right, so Michael Phelps though, he is built to swim, right? He's six foot four. Now, you know, most folks have a wingspan about equal to their height. So for me, I'm five, seven, my wingspan's about five, seven, but for Michael Phelps, he's built to swim. He's six, four, but he has the wingspan of a man who's six, seven, pretty crazy. His torso is super long. He has the torso of a guy who's about six, eight, but what's funny is that his lower half is about proportional to a five, nine man. So his lower half is really short. He's really long on the top and he's got super long arms. And then he has size 14 feet like big flippers in the water, right? So he's got these huge propellers for arms. He's got this long body, but then short little legs to reduce the drag and huge flippers on the end for feet. The man was built for swimming, right? He's built for it, but then he works at it. You know, he works and works and works and works at it because, I mean, he, they say he eats like nine to 12,000 calories a day, swims over 40 miles a week. He works and works and works and works. Everything in life is swimming, swimming, swimming. So he has some things that he was born with, and some things that he worked for, right? Let's say that LeBron and Michael Phelps got on a soccer team together. We'd have never heard of them, right? That oh, oh big boy and, and flipper feet would have, would have sat the bench on the team and we'd have never heard. You know, they would have had the skills. You know, they would have had the born on skills to be the best swimmer and the best basketball player, the second best basketball player in history. And um, Jordan, Michael Jordan. Uh, so... <laughs> but we'd have never heard of them, right? Because to be a good pro athlete, you got to be born with the skills and then you got to work at it. So what Paul does right here is he tells why he was such a good religious man. He talks about what he was born with and then what he worked for. Look at it. He says this. He says he has reason for confidence. He says he was, and he gives on his born with stuff, stuff he didn't have anything to do with. Uh, first, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day, which is a requirement for these guys. Of the people of Israel, he was from God's chosen people. Of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the best tribe of all of God's people. So not only is he from God's people, he's from the best of it. You know, in Deuteronomy, it says the tribe of Benjamin is the most beloved. The first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem sits on Benjamin's land. He says, man, I'm from the best people on earth, from the best tribe. He sums it up by saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, like a man among men. Those are the things he was born with. And then he tells what he pursues after. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Y'all know what Pharisees are? Pharisees are the guys that Jesus blasts all the time. These are guys that would take God's laws and add a ton of extra laws. I mean, tiny little laws that govern the minutia of every day. Like they even have laws, for, they have laws for every situation. Like, all right, God says you should rest on the Sabbath. So how many days, how many steps can you take? And that crazy stuff like that. They even have laws like my favorite one was, should you tell an ugly bride that she's ugly on her wedding day? There are two different schools of thought. I mean, these weird laws, you know, because you think on the one hand, you shouldn't lie. But on the other hand, she is ugly. You know, I'm like, so what do you say? You look nice today. You know, and they have they have these laws on everything. And so Paul's saying as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm one of these guys. That's that's what Paul's saying is he's saying before Christ, he's saying everything that I did, I had a law for. I followed the law on every piece of my life. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. These are the things that he pursued. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We've seen that, right? He dragged people out of their houses and put them in prison. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul is not saying that he's perfect. Later on, he'll say that he's the worst of sinners. But he's saying, as far as these laws go, you can't point to one and say that I broke it. 
As to the law, I'm blameless. I've worked super hard at this. And not only was I born awesome, I was born into this religious society. I was born great, but then I worked at it and nobody can tell me that I'm in the wrong. But then look at what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of this stuff, loss as, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That is the word for poop. I count them as poop. I count them as dung, as crap. This junk, it's all crap. All this stuff that I thought that I put confidence in, it's all lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He's saying that knowing Christ is worth so much more than everything he's worked for his whole life. It's like the treasure in the field, right? The guy bought the field because what was in the field was of surpassing worth. It was worth so much more than what he had. It's a picture of following the Lord, right? So for us, we've heard the gospel. We've heard the message that, that we were dead in our sins, that we're recipients of God's wrath. But now we've heard that Jesus provided a way by God pouring out his wrath on his son. This is the gospel, and it's of surpassing worth. It's worth rearranging our whole lives around. We don't pull God out when we need him and just wield him like the box. We don't, we don't do that. The, the New Testament writers never called us to do that, to just be good Believe a couple things and you're good to go. That is nothing about the gospel. That is not what it means to pursue the Lord. Pursuing the Lord is counting Christ more valuable than everything. The repenting from those sins and reordering our whole lives to around Christ, around the gospel. That we'd see Christ and the gospel as so valuable that everything else would be rubbish. Everything else would be junk, right? So for us, that's what we pray, man. We, we pray that... That for you guys that you treasure the gospel. Over and over and over we're told this. We're told, we're given illustrations in the Bible how the, the disciples left everything and followed God. How it's like a treasure that you give everything to follow him. And that's not talking about possessions. It's not saying, hey man, if you got a jacket, you need to sell it. That's talking about heart. That in our hearts we would treasure God above all things. And, and that it would really change our lives. It would change what we watch. It would change how we speak. It would change what we pursue. It would change what we do with our money. That we'd be mastered by the scripture not wield it as a weapon. So we love you guys, man. Uh, we're going to go to small groups. And we're going to talk about what it means to pursue the Lord, what it means to truly treasure the gospel now that we've heard it. Uh, but it's been, a, it's been a fun couple of days, man. We really enjoyed you guys being here. Y'all are fun to hang out with. So um, let, me, uh, let me pray for us. We'll have a five-minute break and then go to small groups. And then uh, do you want to give any instruction for after that? Okay, we'll do this. Let me pray, and then, uh, then we'll, I'll give you some instructions. Jesus, thank you for your gospel, and I pray that we treasure it. I pray that you bless our time in small groups now. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.